myself to those of you on Zoom. Um, our online uh, remote students, there are several of you. And uh, so uh, Harrison, you're there. We spoke before. Is Mariah there? Maria. Mariah, yep. Mariah. Mariah. Was that was I right the first time? Good. Okay. Oh, excuse me. Bishop Massa is here. Uh, he's our rector. So I'm gonna turn it over to him. If you sure. stand here, they can see. They can see me. Okay, very yeah. good. Well, greetings to everybody uh, who's zooming in. Uh, and to all of you who are here. I'm Bishop James Massa, the rector. And uh, after my goodness, uh, 18 months of being uh, remote. It's great to have all of you back uh, in person, or uh, some of you who are remote, uh, perhaps even uh, now in the uh, the new MA program. Some of them? Yes, okay. they are live from Huntington. Okay, well. and, and from Huntington. Mm -hmm. Okay, our sister campus. So that's great. Well, well, welcome everybody. It's great to see you. Um, this is a kind of an exciting year here at uh, St. Joseph's. We're entering the 125th year of the uh, anniversary of the seminary. Uh, many of you know we were founded in 1896, and this has been a, a, a theological school for uh, for many, many decades, and uh, has a great history, an illustrious history, and we're very uh, we're very proud of it, and uh, and also just delighted to see the the master's program and uh, uh, the MA in theology now online expanding and including many of you, many other new students. So uh, um, uh, you're all very welcome. Wish you a very wonderful uh, semester and academic year. Uh, if you ha happen to be free a week from tomorrow, uh, we're celebrating the opening of the 125th year. Cardinal Dolan and the area bishops will be uh, leading us in a Eucharistic celebration in the main chapel, followed by um, a massive barbecue. <laughs> That's how best I can describe it. Um, uh, along with uh, a softball game between uh, seminarians and alumni priests. So, uh, but you're, you're, you're really most welcome. And any time we can be of help with, uh, 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 for you with library services or any other kinds of services that, uh, uh, that are, uh, we can provide through the Archdiocese of New York or the area diocese, please let us know. And uh, we're just delighted to, to welcome back uh, our, our MA students. So thank you. Have a great semester. Thank you, thank Here. Yes, I'm here. Good evening, uh, Dr. Schnell. Great. From 
uh, tuning in from Connecticut. <laughs> Very good. Nice to see you. Now, I want to be extra attentive uh, to those of you who have dialed in uh, remotely. The rest of you, you're right in front of me. You've got me here. Um, um, if there's anything, and if I don't see you waving at me or anything, just call out. All right? But the main thing is, is that you can hear me um, and see me, and I'm going to try not to move around uh, so that uh, you can see me for the whole uh, class. All together, we're 24 altogether. Um, it's a very beautiful number to have uh, for a class. This is a core requirement for all of our programs. So, you know, core requirements, you get, you get the biggest crowd. You know, uh, electives, you get, uh, sometimes I have five in front of me. Uh, so, um, as Father O'Reilly, our beloved academic dean who we lost uh, last year, he used to say, I'm bad at quoting, but he always, he had a line, he'd say, Springsteen is a lot better in front of thousands than he is in front of a small crowd. <laughs> so we'll see how, how we do. Um, let me go back to those of you in front of me. We have Dan Condon, um, Aldemar, uh, welcome. Aldemar is actually one of our students in the Sacred Music program, but this introduction to liturgy is a requirement for that program as well. Uh, Doug Fitzmaurice is here. Uh, Rob Lyons, there you are, right in front of me. Um, Barbara Mackin, is that the right pronunciation? If I mispronounce your name, let me know. Uh, but Barbara is a new student in our post-baccalaureate certificate program, which is a brand new program that we're so happy to offer. Um, uh, Stephen Morganti is here. Uh, Paul Reisman. Good. Um, uh, Benny Rivera, who's new but not so new. It's your second class. We're happy to have you here in person. And then uh, Robert. He doesn't want you to know, but he's one of our seminarians, second year. So we got deacon candidates. We have um, MA students, certificate students on both ends. And we have a seminary, so we got a, we got the whole church here. So that's awesome. Uh, let's see, Lucas is here, Robert is here, Bob. I know you like to be called Bob. Anthony, and then we have Daniel Cornell and Rafael Taveras are uh, absent tonight. So we're all here, right? Amen. Okay. So. Um, the first thing that I want to do is um, just go through some minor particulars that are important. Um, I think my um, attendance is accurate of who's online, who's in person, because I just went through that. I just want to make sure uh, auditors are uh, Vince Pia, um, Lucas, Bob, Anthony, and Raphael and Daniel. All right, everybody else is for credit. Okay. Which Daniel is that? What's that? Oh, Scholastic. There's like three Daniels in the class. Oh. I know. <laughs> I remember. I, I had some of this group uh, last 
And by that, I don't only mean the course material, I mean, you know, um, some logistics as well um, with Populi and finding the material that I'm posting. Um, you know, uh, some of you, I'm sure, are used to that, but some of you are, are not. So I will go through everything like that as we start. So um, the first thing I want to say that the, um, the notes, the PowerPoint, um, the day before I try hard, but sometimes it's, it'll be Wednesday morning, I send these to you. They're on Populi under files so that you have it. Yeah, I see some of you do. And you can just take your notes on here because you have this and you don't have to be writing what's on here already, but I will add commentary to everything that you might want to write, and you can write it right on there or do it on your, however you like on your computer. Um, but the thing is, um, I just want to tell you, I'm going to go through uh, an introduction to the course and a review of the syllabus, because I want to make sure everybody is on the same page and know the expectations, at least as we start. And then I will do some introduction to liturgical studies, and then looking at the big question, what is liturgy? Again, this is very broad. And again, some of you have had me before, you know my story. I always start a course broad, and then we narrow down. And that's, you'll see, that's how the syllabus takes you. And I always, and, and for those of you who've had me before, you've heard this story before, but I always use the analogy. Uh, every now and then, my husband and I will sit down at home and he'll say, let's watch a movie. And we are one second into the movie and he says to me, always, do you know what this is about? And I always respond saying, well, we have to watch it. <laughs> we have to watch it. So it's the same thing with the course. You know, you're going to get a lot of introductory stuff tonight, and you might say, what is this all about? Well, it'll unfold as we go through these 14 weeks together. We'll, we'll unpack it and unfold. Sounds good? All right. So this is the plan for tonight, and we'll see. Normally, class is 7 to 9.30. Uh, we'll see how we do. If we end early for the first night, so be it. But I don't know. And it depends on all of us. All right? We'll see how it goes. You never know. So the first thing I want to go through, and I'm going to go through it uh, briefly, because you all have the syllabus. Again, it's posted on your course page under syllabus. So you have it. But I just want to talk through it. Um, and then any questions you have about assignments, you can ask. But the, for the first thing is the course description. And um, you can I assume that you've all seen the syllabus and you have it so that I don't have to read every detail of it? And if you don't, go to Populi on the course page on the syllabus, it's there. All right, but I just want to let you know that the course description isn't my description, it's the school's description. That no matter who teaches this course, this is the description. And everybody who teaches it needs to include what this description says. But the, the important thing is, is that we're going to explore the theological. That's important. We're going to look at the historical, but it's not a course in the history of the liturgy, but we're, we're going to do a little bit of that. Because you can't understand 
what we uh, understand liturgy in our contemporary church without knowing what came before. And things seem to make sense of what we are doing now with the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. We see echoes of it when we go back to history. And all of that, I hope, will make some sense to you. And then, very importantly, we'll look at the pastoral dimensions. You know, it's like when you're out in a parish, you know, what do you do with this? You know, uh, on the practical pastoral level. So that will also uh, be a very important part. And that's all in your description. The intended uh, student learning outcomes. Every course that we have here at the seminary, the learning outcomes for every course come from our mission. And if you haven't, uh, whether you're a new student or not so new student, and you haven't read on our website on mission, take some time to, to look at it. Because everything in every course we teach comes out of that mission. All right? So I'm not going to, I'm just going to mention a few things. You can all read this for yourself. But learning outcomes, what we hope you will take from this is, number one, a systematic study of the liturgy that is faithful to the magisterium of the church. Okay? And a systematic study. I know so many students uh, of our new students that I interviewed uh, this year um, for all of our various programs. They're like, well, you know, I do a lot of reading. And it's like, you know, I don't know where to go from here. And it's always, when you come here, you get a systematic look at it all. And you know what to read. And you know how to digest it all. And you have a guide to it that you're just not out there. All right? Um, you're going to become familiar with sources. That's one of the most important things is the bibliography we offer you all. That you have sources for good liturgical theology and practice. So we offer you sources and methods of liturgical studies so that you can really gain competency. You know, I've been teaching and studying liturgy for almost 40 years. And um, I, I don't want to sound crass or anything, but everybody's a liturgist, and it's not true. <laughs> Everybody thinks they're a liturgist. But a, a, a systematic course like this really helps the student to really understand what is liturgy. And with that, understanding the theology of liturgy, and then knowing how to put it into practice. Because, um, and again, some of you have heard me say this, there are a lot of well-intentioned people out there working very hard at the wrong thing. You have to really have a good understanding. And for those of you who are deacon candidates, um, you know, seminarians get this course early on. Our deacon candidates don't get it till fourth year. I have to be honest, in my opinion, I think that's a bad idea. I, when we do our next curriculum review, I want to move it. I want to move it earlier. Because liturgy and life are so connected, and I think it's something that you need to really have a systematic study early on. 
But yeah, I have to wait for the next curriculum review. <laughs> so uh, it is what it is for now. You know, somebody like Barbara, it's her first class. And I say, yay, it's good, it's good. All right, and some of you uh, perhaps uh, joining us uh, remotely, um, it's near the beginning of your uh, study. So anyway, um, number three, develop your ability to draw upon Catholic liturgical tradition and contemporary scholarship, all right? And we're going to see that contemporary, good contemporary scholarship is rooted in tradition, okay? Um, there's nothing new. We just say it differently. And we enact it differently. <coughs> You're going to develop, uh, those of you particularly for credit, uh, develop your proficiency for academic research and writing. Okay? And then number five, uh, which is really important to me as a pastoral theologian, a pastoral liturgist, uh, deepen your relationship with Christ by integrating your knowledge of liturgical studies for the sake of the service of the church. Okay? Makes sense? I hope. All right. So let's just take a brief look at the texts that I put down. Um, some of these are good, and some of them you might think are a little dry, but we're going to work around it. Uh, we'll see. All right? And we might change things up midway again we're going to be flexible. Somebody once told me, a priest I had in my doctoral studies said to the class, I forget the context, there's faith, hope, and love, and in the end there's flexibility. That's a good one, right? Yeah. And we're going to be flexible. If something doesn't work for us, I'm going to switch it midstream. And you know what? It'll be okay. All right? You with me? Yes. Good. So, uh, required text, general instruction of the Roman Missal. I, I, I have everything here, but um, it doesn't you know, matter that I show it. But this is the, uh, warmly known as the germ. Uh, this is um, basically a very important document for everybody to have, and it will be very pertinent to your final exam as well. But this is more or less the commentary to the revised third edition of the Roman Missal that we, was introduced to us in 2011. So you have to make sure that you have the latest edition of this, because there's an older one. Um, I believe the date is 2011. So this is a commentary, on, and you can learn an awful lot here from this, all right? Um, regarding the history, that I mentioned, we're going to do two weeks of historical development. This little book is a jewel. Um, it's a jewel to have, and it is good background for you to have, and I will add um, other sources into our discussion as well. But this is um, a short read, um, and it's uh, something that I've read pretty deeply. Um, those of you on Zoom, if you can't see it, I have a thing that, uh, read how to read a book, read it deeply, which means you highlight, you underline, you write in the margins. Uh, that's the way to read a book, particularly for a class. And I always show my students because I want all your books to look like this. <laughs> and then eventually they start to fall apart. Um, tabs, all that. 
So that, that, that's basically um, things that we're going to look at. I will bring up other um, resources that are on your bibliography, just as point of information uh, that you might be interested in, and that'll be great. But that makes sense, I hope. Okay? All right. So, course requirements. All right? And um, we really don't have any true auditors. The only auditors in the class are deacon candidates, and they're not really auditors. That's because <laughs> you have to do the work and you have assignments. Uh, those of you that may not know that or understand, um, some of our deacon candidates don't take the master's degree. They audit classes, but audit is a bad word. It's, but it's the word our student management system used. It just means non-credit. But they have to be accountable and do the work and do most of the assignments. And you all know that, those of you, Vince, on the screen and those of you in front of me. So I like to be clear. But a true auditor would be somebody who comes because they're interested and they do the reading and they listen and then they can go home and relax. <laughs> you know, but we don't have anybody in here so let me just go uh, over the uh, course requirements. Certainly attendance is so important for you to be here. Um, I do encourage participation, please. I don't want to be the sage on the stage. You know, um, I will have to do some lecturing, but I welcome student participation and questions um, as well. And I get a sense that you're reading by the questions you ask, you know, comments you might have. So all that I give you 10 points for, basically showing up. <laughs> all right? Um, and just a little note you see on your uh, sheet uh, regarding absences, please uh, try to inform me by email in advance, unless it's an emergency. If you have an emergency and I haven't heard from you, I'll be worried, so let me know when you can. Um, like two people who couldn't be here tonight, they emailed me. Uh, if you're absent, you're marked absent. Our student management system, but I put in a note uh, if I'm informed ahead of time why the absent was. There's a place for me to put in notes. Um, a midterm exam will be take home. I like take home exams. I get better quality work uh, when you do that. Um, and it'll be just essay format, probably two essay questions. I'm not really sure what it's going to look like yet. We'll see. All right. But that's 25% of your grade, and that's around October 20th. Right now, that's what's on there. But again, it could be changed to a week after or before, whatever. Uh, a book review um, of uh, Ratzinger's The Spirit of the Liturgy. And um, I was thinking of this. I made this, this the assignment. Um, but again, flexibility. If there's another book on the bibliography that I've given you that you would prefer to do your book review, you talk to me about it. Yes, Rob. OK. Um, I ordered the uh, Ratzinger book today. I had to get it hardbound. It was $54. The paperback is not available. No. 
Okay, it just said it's, it's not available for yeah. sale. Because I know some of you didn't get all the books yet. You want to do a little at a time, and that's perfectly fine. And we do have these in the library, you know, um, uh, that you could come here and um, use the library. Uh, those of you who are out in Huntington, that's um, an issue, that we contact the library here. I think the Huntington students know that, and we make arrangements for you to get materials from here. Um, but again, I, 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 I did the assignment and I did this months ago and I've had kind of second thoughts about it, um, particularly as I'm rereading the book. Um, it's not that I don't like it, it's good. But I, I want to leave the door open that if you would prefer to review another book on the list, just get my approval first. How's that sound? Does it make sense? All right, you know, I want to. I want you to learn something. Assignments just can't be about cranking out stuff. Assignments are meant to teach you something. All right, and then the final exam, 40% uh, of the grades, is really a pastoral assignment for you. It's an evaluation and a report on a Eucharistic liturgy. Um, and I have a description here, and this is where you really have to understand both Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, and the General Instruction. Um, and this is always an interesting assignment. I remember when I was a liturgy student over 30 years ago, I had this assignment. And I continue to give it out when I teach the course. But the idea of this assignment is to observe the liturgy and report on how it exemplified or failed to exemplify significant liturgical principles learned through your reading. So here's where, and I want to make it clear, I don't want you to become liturgical critics. I want to say that from the beginning, because that's a trap that once you really, I once worked with a sister and um, in a parish, and I did a lot of the liturgical stuff, and I would talk to her about things she didn't know. And what she said to me, she said, you ruined everything for me, because now I go to Mass, and I'm thinking of all the things I'm doing wrong. I don't want you to do that. Don't become a critic. But I want you to know. I want you to know. And I'm going to give you an example. For the past few months, I have had, my husband is a liturgical musician, and he's been ill so I have to uh, drive him on the weekend. So I have to go not to the parish of my choice, but to his parish where he works. And there's one priest who I know very well, and I really love him and respect him. I worked with him years ago. But he always does the announcements before the prayer after communion. You know, after communion, let us pray. Yep. There's a prayer. It ends the communion rite. The announcements are not part of the communion rite. It drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. But I don't want it to drive me crazy. But I'm like, why? Why doesn't he get that? You know? And I know it's like a practical thing. Well, everybody's sitting down. Let me do the announcements. But the problem here is, and why I use it as an example, I think in his mind he thinks it's the concluding prayer of the Mass, and it's not. 
it's the, it's the prayer that closes the communion rite. And then we go on to the dismissal rites. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Have, you, have you ever asked him about that? No, because I don't want to, you know, it's like I have to let it go. And this is why I bring it up. I want you to know what it should be like. All right? I want you to know. But I don't want you to, because there was a time I'd go to church and say, oh, my God. You know? And I don't do that anymore. I'm like, oh, it's prayer. It's the prayer of the church. So I, I hold back. So I'm trying to say I want you to embrace the spirit of the liturgy, which we will talk about. Because, and I see a hand up, but give me a second. No, no. Um, you could also, on the other side, go to a mass that's absolutely perfect according to this. And the spirit of the liturgy is not there. That happens also. So it's like finding that balance. How do we achieve doing what we're supposed to do, the vision of the church, and how do we also have the spirit of the liturgy of the baptized, gathered, the gathered assembly, etc.? We'll talk more about that. But Paul, did you want to add something? No, no, no sure. it's, it's just that I understand what your intent is, just okay. so we're aware, yeah. not to become critics, gotcha. But for purposes of this particular assignment, you're going to be a critic. We can be a critic and say he did this, but he shouldn't. It's not going to go back to our pastors, is it? Yeah. Okay. I'm the only one who's going to read it. Okay. Because the point, uh, those of you on screen, make, you're all with me? Make sense? Don't be afraid to ask a question, please. Um, yeah, this assignment is to show me you know what the liturgy, how, let me rephrase, that you know how the liturgy of the Eucharist should be prayed. Anthony. So, would, could you, so if there's more than one priest saying mass, because I pretty much stay for all the masses and sometimes. I want you to do priest. one. So you just want to do one priest? One, one liturgy. Okay. One mass. You're not going to evaluate everybody. Pick one. You can go to another parish, your own parish, I don't care. It's got to be Roman Catholic. But pick one, go to it, and you're going to be a critic, quote unquote. All right? And you're going to write it up. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Is there anything that says anything about the announcements where they should be? Yeah, the general. It does say it in there. The okay. announcements come after when the it's in there. The announcements actually go back to ancient times. After the communion rite in the ancient church, the uh, presider would say, "You all come back next week. We're going to be here." And we're going to gather and pray together. That's the origin of the announcement. But now we add 10,000 things about everything that's going on. You know? But that's okay. But that's the origin. And they go after the prayer after communion. Because as you will learn, we have to close the communion rite. And we're going to look at every part when we get to that. And it's all in here. You know, the communion rite ends with the prayer after communion. And then we move into the dismissal rites. And in between that, there can be announcements. There doesn't have to be announcements, but most churches have them. You know, and some churches just say, take a copy of the bulletin. Which nobody reads. <laughs> or go on the website, whatever. But that's, you know, but so yes, there is a place for the announcements. That's Professor, so you want us to you want us to actually go to a church then and just do observation of the, yep. the mass? Yep. 
And we'll talk more about it when the time comes and as we're talking about the general instruction. Uh, but this is the assignment, to evaluate a liturgy. What do you see going on there? What do you experience? And, and um, you will know how to observe it, uh, be, uh, do critical reflection on it, because you're going to know what this says. And you're going to understand the principles in the document on the liturgy. Make sense? We'll talk more about it. I'm, again, I'm just giving you the big picture here. And at some point, somebody tell me it's time for a break, because some of you know I just keep on rambling on. Right? OK. Uh, let me at least try to get through the uh, syllabus before we uh, take a break. And I just there's a note here. Candidates for the permanent diaconate who are taking class for audit will only do the midterm and the final. You don't have to do the book review, OK? if you're for um, I have on the syllabus that all assignments are submitted to me via email in a Word document um, to my uh, archny.org email address. I ju just a heads up, don't worry about it. There might be a change to be announced before the midterm uh, because we're experimenting with Turnitin. Some of you might be familiar with it, we're experimenting with it, and I have an option of using it, and I think as the associate academic dean, I better. <laughs> so I can help others to do it, uh, but I haven't done it yet, so there might be the option to, you've probably heard about this before, right? Yeah, to submit, but to be announced. Don't worry about it tonight. I just wanted to give you a hint. Now this is an important thing that I, I never had this on any of my syllabi before. And I put it in this year. And I put it in for a reason. Due dates are to be adhered to as they are an important aspect of graduate work. And extensions must be approved two weeks in advance. And I put that in here. A professor that I had in my doctoral studies did that. He said, no, there's no extensions. This is the due date. In your work and in your uh, you know, life, you have a deadline, you got to find a way to meet it. All right? So that's one thing. So it's part of managing your time. But I had some bad experiences recently with extensions going beyond acceptable. And I'm trying to avoid that. But on the other hand, I'm also being flexible that if something comes up in your life and you know about it, just let me know and I will give you a two-week extension. You know, life happens. Uh, but just don't take it for granted that, oh, I can hand it in at any time. Some professors take off credit for every day it's late. I don't do that if I know the situation, which is usually a legitimate one in my experience. But I put it here that you, to try to help you as pastoral ministers, school teachers, whatever the case may be, that sometimes we have a deadline that no matter what happens, we have to get it done, you know? I always remember my daughter was working on her master's degree, and her final paper was, it was on an online course. She had to make sure by midnight it was submitted, and her husband was taken to the emergency room, and she went with him, computer in hand, <coughs> And she's working on her final paper to complete her master's degree. 
And the doctor walked in and she looked right at the doctor with her sick husband and said, you gotta wait a minute. <laughs> she wasn't gonna miss her deadline, no matter what. So it's an extreme case, but it's a, it's a real case. Rob. On the uh, due dates on the book review and the final exam, this may sound crazy, but can we turn them in early? Since you've already gotten, I mean, it's very specific what they need to be. Um, yeah, but not too early. You know this. I do. <laughs> I want you to, I appreciate it, but I want you to have some of the course under your belt first. So not too early. But if you, you that's why I put with the book review, you can turn in before the final, basically any, the book review could be basically. But not next week. Not next week. That, that's what I mean. Yeah. Because I've had some real conscientious students that, uh, you know, it's like, no, get a little bit of what we're talking about here. Absorbed, integrated, internalized first. That's a great question. You all with me? Make sense? I try to be as clear as possible, but you never know. <laughs> all right. Now, the re some of, let me flip through here. I'm forgetting to turn. Okay, academic integrity policy, I am required to put this. It's in the syllabus. I'm not <coughs> gonna go through it. I'm gonna just summarize it. It's all in our student handbook. Those of you who are new and coming to the um, new student orientation on Saturday will get and more extensive explanation. But this is a policy we have uh, about being honest. As students of theology, you need to be people of integrity and honesty in all the work that you do. And I know you heard this before, right? <laughs> but this is really important, because sadly, even in a seminary, we run across dishonesty. And we're trying our hardest. Um, remember, the first vocation is the human vocation. Okay, that's important. Be people who are honest. I can remember when I wrote my dissertation, nobody was gonna write that for me. Every period, comma, semicolon was gonna be mine. And, you know, and that's what we all need to have. That your work is your own, all right? So this is all elaborated. I've got it here for you to read thoroughly. This is totally taken from our student handbook which applies to all of our students, seminarians, non-seminarians, everybody. It's the same thing. Um, and it goes on, and the biggest thing is plagiarism, sadly. And this is why we want to turn it in, because that will help us. Very often, um, in a course, if we know our resources well, we can pick up plagiarism, where a student has just copied something, uh, or taking a book review off of Amazon, that's happened, and we can find it immediately. But turn it in, we'll find it. But, you know, I mean, I, I think I'm preaching to the choir here, but you wanna make your work your own, all right? So this is all in our handbook, all right? And I, I'm just required to elaborate on it, all right? It's all about uh, academic honesty. And when you're writing, the best advice I ever got, whenever you're writing an assignment, when in doubt, footnote. When in doubt, footnote. That's the best advice I ever got. You know, footnote it. All right? Okay, writing resources. Again, anybody who's a new student 
who's coming to the orientation on Saturday. You will have a whole workshop on, on these writing resources. Uh, it's a refresher for most of you. Uh, just to know that we adhere to the Chicago style for written assignments, and that goes for every written assignment, even if it's an essay question. Just follow the format. It's good practice um, to have everything um, adhering to this. Uh, the St. Joseph Seminary Writing Guides are on the website under the library. You can print them out. And like Barbara, for the new student orientation, uh, she'll probably require that you have them, and she'll, uh, Professor McLaughlin will review them as well. But it all comes from the Kate Turabian book, a manual for writers that I have up there. That's a good book to have uh, as well to, to as a resource. It's in several editions, and I think it's in a ninth edition now. The seventh edition, I know, backwards and forwards. And every time they come out with a new edition, I'm like, why? You know? But that's all right. So how you all doing? Um, let's see. Now, as I said, I don't know that we will go to 9.30 tonight, so I don't know if you want to take a break now. Uh, and then I'll go into the topics, and we can go into the broad or explanation. Uh, we could take, I know every professor is different with breaks. Um, I'm going to say 10 minutes, enough to get something to drink, use the facilities if you need, and especially for you at home, um, you know, uh, just kind of a stretch break as well. So it's 5 of 8, I think that's the right time, 7.53. So by like 5 after, we'll start to assemble back and we'll go through the topics that we're going to explore and then we'll go into uh, the big question about what is liturgy and liturgical studies, et cetera. All right, and as I said, um, I have no problem for the first night ending early because for the rest of the semester, we'll probably just make it. <laughs> we'll see. You good? First of all, any questions? Any questions from uh, the uh, remote learners? You're all good? Good. Very clear. Thank you. All right. You're very, I see thumbs up. I like it. Okay. You all good here? Just one quick, I'm sorry. Yes, one, please. One, the reading material, the few books that you have us looking at, how do we know? Or will you tell us about Oh, I'm going to tell you. Right, with, okay. with each, that's a great question that uh, we have asked here in Yonkers um, about the uh, recommended reading, uh, giving you uh, quite an extensive bibliography. And I really did try to cut it down. But I will refer, not to everything, but when we're talking about, say, the liturgical movement of the, early, of the 19th, early 20th century, I'll refer to that you might want to look at. You know, again, it's recommended. What about the textbooks that you have for us? Yeah, the, um, I'll do the same. Okay. Yeah, and you're going to see tonight, I'm going to, uh, when we talk about what is liturgy, I'm going to refer to different uh, as well. Great, great question. Thank you. Good. But I'm not, like some professors, because I've seen all the syllabi, some, you know, their, their syllabus looks very different than mine week to week. It'll be like week one, the like it would say Erwin, chapter one and two. I don't work like that. I'm not that structured, you know, that I don't work like that. And a lot of my colleagues don't either. 
But I, I will say, for more on this, look at Irwin. For more on this, look at Metzger. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah. Awesome. See you back here at about five, six after. Great. are back. Uh, just got a couple minutes. We'll wait for Anthony. But while we're waiting, I just wanted to mention as far as resources, and this is totally up to you. I, I think I put it on the bibliography. But uh, there's this series of, I think it's a four-volume set of liturgy documents from liturgy training publications. If you really love the liturgy, I own them all. They've just been revised. I have the old, now I have the new. But every um, liturgy document, both the, from the council and after the council, are in four volumes. I think it's four volumes. But anyway, I think it's on your bibliography. Let me just see. I just throw it out there. It's up to you. but I thought I'd mention it to you, literature documents, but it's not necessary. You can buy them all um, also from USCCB. You can buy them separately, and a lot of them you can find, like Sacrosanctum Concilium online. So, but I'm like a book person. And then the, uh, there's another book, um, and I'm sure I put it on. authors, but it's called Principles of the Liturgy. It's just, you know, something else you might want to look at. Uh, it starts off with the history, which we're going to, and I'm going to use it as a resource. History of the Liturgy, um, etc. It's just a complement to the Metzger book. Not required, but recommended. <coughs> Alright, so, show and tell my book. Okay, so, uh, moving along, I hope you all got something cool to drink or something nice to snack on. But uh, the next thing I just want to review, we're still in the review mode, and I'm adding commentary every now and then, the topics that we'll be looking at uh, starting next week. And as I mentioned before, we'll have the historical development in two parts. Um, it's not, it's certainly not a course in the history of the liturgy, but uh, as I said before, in order to understand where we are, where we are, we need to understand where we came from, what are our roots, all right? And then we, we um, I've heard it said from students that they begin to understand certain things about Vatican II because of something that might have happened in the fourth or fifth century. You know, because you have to remember too, the historical study of the liturgy didn't start until Vatican II. We didn't know. There were no resources 
So it's relatively a new um, area of historical studies in the liturgy. Um, but one of the um, main things about the Second Vatican Council is that it went back to the sources. And that meant it went back to the early church. Not to, not to duplicate or you know, do exactly what they did, but to get the principle of what they did and why they did it and why we're doing what we do today. And we, we will explore that in further detail. But that's the reason that we need to start with some historical development. Um, particularly, like, when we talk about the catechumenate, you know, the rite of Christian initiation of adults, which I'll dedicate some time to. Those of you who I have for pastoral ministries, we touched on it. We'll do it more from a liturgical angle, because it is a liturgy. Nobody knows that, but it is. <laughs> um, um, but particularly, the restoration of the catechumen, it came from what we know, what the church was doing in the fourth century, because we found the resources. And the uh, working group that worked on the restoration of the catechumen, knew the resources and found them. So that's all I want you to understand is that's why we need to go back to some historical development. All right. Then very importantly, and very dear to my heart, is the next um, theological foundations of the liturgical movement. This is the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, and this is what I find so um, incredibly interesting. And there's a book on your bibliography. You can make note of it if you like, but we'll talk about it extensively. By Keith Pecklers, Pecklers, The Unread Vision. It's about the liturgical movement in the United States. And it's, it's just amazing what the, uh, the, uh, uh, the founders of the liturgical movement were trying to do. So we're going to look at that. All right, and I'll introduce you to a prime character at the end of class tonight, okay, on the slide. And then certainly we have to get to Second Vatican Council because that's the vision of the church now. And that's what we have to know. Uh, the liturgical document that came out of the Second Vatican Council. Now, one little uh, caution about this. Uh, some of you have studied ecclesiology, some of you haven't, doesn't matter. I'll give you as much that you need to understand this. But when we look at documents of the Second Vatican Council, it's a bad idea to look at them in isolation. So in other words, what I mean by that, we're going to be studying the liturgical document, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. But what we read in the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, they influence each other. So it's not a, we have to um, know about some integration of, of, so for example, let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Lumen Gentium, all right, <coughs> clearly defines the church as the people of God, the body of Christ. We need to know that to understand what we do in liturgy. And that was a big thing with Pius XII looking at the mystical body of the church that comes together to pray and celebrate the liturgy. So you see how our understanding of church 
is going to influence our practice of liturgy. All right? Okay? Make sense? I think, right? Mm -hmm. Again, all introductory for summer review. Right? Um, we're going to have an introduction to sacraments and sacramental theology. Okay? Because when we talk about liturgy, we're, we're also taught, we're not only talking about the Eucharist, we're talking about all sacraments. So we need to understand the meaning of sacraments, the, the celebration of, okay? And along with that, just like we're looking at liturgical theology, we have to integrate some sacramental principles into this. So we'll do a session on that. Could, every single one of these can be a whole course. And you know, that's the story you'll notice with most of your core courses. You could say, oh, this could be a whole course, but we're just going to like do two and a half hours on it. But it could be a whole course. All right, that's the same thing here. Liturgy and time. As I mentioned before, in my choice for prayer using the feast day, the, the day, the year, the cycle, we're going to look at that because it's extremely important. When I was, um, and just, you know, by way, some of you know this, but a lot of you don't, I was in pastoral ministry in the Diocese of Rockville Center for 22 years. So starting my 10th year here, teaching and directing programs, I come with pastoral background. So one of the things I always try to stress in a liturgical context is this idea of liturgy and time, meaning the liturgical calendar. And I do that because when I worked in a parish, I did this for parents and catechists and Catholic school teachers. And I'm telling you, three quarters of them would come to me after I do a session on the liturgical year saying, I went to Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school, Catholic college, and I never heard this. And in my own dissertation that I wrote on the Paschal Triduum, I referred to that because it influenced me want, wanting to write on the Triduum because, and I refer to it as the null curriculum. In other words, it doesn't exist. We're not teaching our, the people of God about this beautiful liturgical year that we have of feasts and seasons. To me, it's key, it's primary, it gives us our identity of who we are. We need to know that today is the Feast of the Nativity of Mary. We need to know that. You know, that's important for who we are. You know, we've got a whole slew. Next Wednesday is Our Lady of Sorrows. We're going to go crazy this month, <laughs> right? I I'm not going to lie, but like when I used to teach Catholic, I still teach Catechism. I always skip that um, that chapter on the um, on the on the calendar year. On the calendar year, yeah, Carlos. Don't do it ever again. <laughs> and I'll tell you something. I used to do consulting for a publishing company of uh, textbooks for children. It's always at the back of the book. It's always at the back of the book, like in like an appendix, like a use it if you want. That's yeah. terrible. That is. Terrible. I complained about it to one publisher I did consulting for, and they didn't ever hire me back. Well, I didn't care because I believed in it so strongly. No, this needs to be front and center. And when I directed a catechetical program, I made it front and center. And believe me, one little boy told his mother, his mother told me, 
My son was as excited to tell me it was ordinary time as he was to tell me he could tie a shoe. That's what you want to hear. Isn't that great? Yeah. I'll never forget it. And that was 20 years ago. I'll never forget it because we did it. We did it. I said, you tell your child every week. It's the 23rd Sunday in ordinary time. Let them know that the way they know it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And it worked. It worked. So anyway, we're going to talk about, of course, the Roman Missal. Uh, 2011, the third edition of the Roman Missal. Uh, remember with that, we all, how could we forget that revision? It was the hottest topic in town and the hottest topic of debate. I was in pastoral ministry at the time and it was like, you know, uh, you looked at some blogs and it was like a tennis match. You know, people arguing about it. But anyway, it is what it is. We have it and there was good reason for it and we'll look at that. But it used to be called the sacramentary. Well, now it's the Roman Missal, and the germ goes with that. The germ breaks it open for us. Some of my colleagues who teach this course require that students buy the Roman Missal. You could, I own two copies of it, a hardcover ritual edition, which I don't really need, but I love books, and I have it. But they make a study edition, and if it's something you want, I'll bring it and I'll show it to you when we get to it and maybe have it on your shelf if you're building a library, which I think any, any minister uh, in the church should build a library to have forever and ever. Um, we'll look at post-Vatican II liturgical documents. There are several, and many of them are in revisions, like music and Catholic worship, for example. Um, when I was first married, my husband being a director of music, he was on the music commission in the Diocese of Brooklyn, Robert, um, the, one of the first music commission. And we're newly married, and you know, those of you married, you do everything together. So he was going around the Brooklyn Diocese talking about this new document that came out. I went to everyone. So I knew this document, but it's now been revised. Sing to the Lord. It's, it's revised. But we'll talk about it. Art and environment, Catholic worship, built of living stones. There are so many beautiful, beautiful post-conciliar documents that have been uh, updated and revised. But they're important in parish life, uh, no matter what we do, to know they exist. Like, for example, Sing to the Lord is for musicians. But everybody should know it, because it's not only for musicians. You know, it's about sacred music, but everybody could learn from it, you know? So, so we'll, we'll do that. And again, this is as parish ministers, teachers, whatever the case may be, <coughs> deacons, uh, priests, you certainly can't be an expert in everything. <coughs> but it's my opinion, and this comes out of my 22 years of pastoral experience, you need to be aware that these things exist. If you're not a musician, be aware that there's a document on music. You know, uh, be aware there's a document on art and environment. So awareness, not that you have to study every one. So awareness is a big thing uh, to me for, for, for all of you. And then of course, I, I had to put it in here, the right of Christian initiation of adults, um, the RCIA, commonly known, because that is the most misunderstood liturgical right that we have uh, in our church across the country. 
I do work for liturgy training publications. I'm on a team uh, that teaches people around the United States. I do workshops in person and online um, about this, and it is so misunderstood. Uh, and I, I do it, as some of you know, in the pastoral ministry course, but it has to be brought up in a liturgy course because it's a liturgy, the rite of Christian initiation of adults. Most people think it's a catechetical program. It is not. It is a liturgy. It's a liturgy that engages catechesis, and that would, that's what makes it unique. So we'll talk about it from the liturgical aspect in this class as well, okay? And, and lucky Robert, you get to take the full course on it in the spring. I teach it to the seminarians in the spring in their MDiv program. And then uh, what I decided to do, sorry I didn't change this, um, I, I put for this uh, final topic special issues in the liturgy. And this is really very pastoral and practical, uh, but I don't want it to be left unsaid. And on your uh, syllabus, it has more of an outline. Uh, that I want to look at and notice the language. Language is going to be a big thing here. Hear that. The language of the liturgy. Because we often misuse it. And this is a prime example. Masses with children. Who can tell me what we usually refer to that? Family mass. mass. Children's mass. Children's mass. Yeah. It's not the right language. There's one mass, but we, have, we can have masses with children. That's the language of the church. Lectionary for masses with children. See, so I, wanna, I really want you to pay attention to the proper language. Okay, and some of you know who I've had before. You know my comments and track changes. <laughs> I drove you crazy, right? <laughs> right? A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> A little bit. Liturgy of the word with children, very misunderstood. It's a liturgy of the word. What do a lot of parishes, and, and some of you who don't know me, I, ha I will say my famous line. If you know it, you can repeat it. This is uh, an observation, not a judgment. Okay, because I give you a lot of real examples. An observation. Most parishes that have the liturgy of the word with children make it a catechetical session. It is not. It was never meant to be. That wasn't the intention of the church. It was, it's to be a liturgy of the word adapted for children. And that's why we have a lectionary for children, an approved lectionary. So we're going to go through all that. Okay? I even wrote a book about it. But anyway, I feel strongly about this. Have you noticed? Okay. <laughs> And then this is something that I had to add this year to this course. We have to look at the Samorum Pontificum, uh, Benedict XVI, that allowed for the extraordinary form. And now, Traditiones Custodes. Uh, um, my, my, I will tell you right off the bat, my ecclesiastical Latin is terrible, because I took four years of classical Latin. So it's a different accent, so I apologize. Someday I'm going to audit Latin one. <laughs> But anyway, Pope Francis is kind of taking away what Pope Benedict allowed for. But there's important undergirding principles for that. 
that we will talk about here. And it's not a, I don't want to make it a matter of opinion, um, but I want to make it um, that we are really objectively looking at the documents and seeing, and, and we can bring in our pastoral experience of what might be happening in our own parishes. You know, but Pope Francis has a real concern and um, I share some of the concern. I have appreciation, and some of you know, for the extraordinary form for different reasons, but I also have concerns for it as well. Professor, what do you mean, what do you mean by extraordinary forms? Oh, uh, uh, the mass before the Second Vatican Council. That's the great question. Um, I just assume everybody knows extra extraordinary means it's not the ordinary form, the ordinary form is the mass from the what we're using, the Roman Missal. But extraordinary form in this document, Benedict XVI gave permission for the uh, Tridentine mass to be said, and it was supposed to be on a limited basis uh, for pastoral purposes, for people who are 95 years old, who that's all they knew. But in my own parish, they have it every single Sunday. That wasn't the intent, and Pope Francis is kind of pulling back on it. Um, and I haven't, I will admit to you right now, I haven't studied it thoroughly. I just read it, not deeply. Um, but we need to look at it to, to try to understand. My, uh, and just again, I don't, uh, and every, if it's my opinion, I'll tell you, this is me speaking, but most of the time I'm speaking from the vision of the church. But as a liturgist, my problem with extraordinary form, as much as I love the prayerfulness of it, the reverence of the people, if any of you have ever been, my problem is it's different readings, different feasts. That, to me, that bothers me. If we're all on the same calendar, the vision of the church, and then we go to extraordinary form, it's a different, different readings, not the lectionary we use, so there's problems. And I put a great book on your, um, I don't mean to digress, but there is a book called From Advent to Pentecost that uh, right before he died, I think it's Bradshaw. Um, sorry, let me just check for you in case you're interested. <laughs> um, Yes, it is. It doesn't matter. But um, for now, it doesn't matter. But anyway, this author, I can't remember who he is right now, but he, right before he died... Regan. Who is it? Patrick Regan. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Barbara. That's why I need students to be on top of this. But anyway, what he did in this book, he took the liturgy side by side and did a real comparison. And it's interesting, it was published and shortly after he died, but it was an extensive study and um, extremely well written. I remember getting it on my iPad on Kindle because I wanted it right away, but then I bought the book because I need paper. You know, but it's that good that you, you have this side by side that you, you just get a better, deeper understanding. And the interesting thing for me is that an extraordinary form the right of Christian initiation of adults does not exist. And that is a champion of the Second Vatican Council, the restoration of the catechumenate. 
and it doesn't exist in the extraordinary form. Rob? What is, what is the difference between the ordinary form of the Mass is said in Latin and the extraordinary form? That's what I mean by extraordinary form. No, oh, no. well. You can still you can yeah. use Latin on the ordinary form. Yes, you can. Without special permission. The difference is it's the mass before I think 1960. Yeah, when I was growing. Yeah, <laughs> and me too. I was yeah. in you know high school, but yeah. So it's using this older form that was really um, done away with. There's right. a better word for that. Abrogated. With the Second Vatican Council. But it's not the ordinary form said in Latin? No. Okay, yeah, you no. want to be clear about that? No. I mean, we have Latin Day on Tuesday where we sing in Latin and all that. That's perfectly acceptable. And you'll see in Sacrosanctum Concilium, it never said to throw Latin away. Never said that. So to use the vernacular, but to keep Latin as well. So that's why we sing sometimes Sanctus and Agnus Dei and all of that. And that's perfectly. But the extraordinary form is a whole different form of the mass. And I could elaborate on this a lot, but I'll stop here and I'll just say one more thing. What most people don't realize, and as I, I fully admit, I attend extraordinary form at times because I find it very prayerful and the people very reverent. Uh, my argument is we can do this in English as well. <laughs> We can, but we don't. But anyway, um, I wanted to make a point. Uh, just give me a minute to get my train of thought back. Um, I lost it, but if it comes back, I'll make sure I tell you. But um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I lost my train of thought. But anyway, we're going to talk more about it particularly with the documents that we'll have. What did Pope Benedict say? What was the purpose of it? And it was a pastoral decision, but now Pope Francis has a different view. Isn't Pop. Latin, though, the official language of the church? Well, when we look at the history, you're going to see originally Mass was said in Greek. So the tradition is Greek. And then Greek no longer was the language of the people. Latin was. So was Latin. But we are, you know, the Roman Rite. And I think the words were Latin holds pride of place. But I'm not talking about saying some prayers in Latin. I'm talking about extraordinary form, which is a different, a form of the Mass before the Second Vatican Council. That's different than, you know, singing the Sanctus in Latin, uh, the Agnus Dei, etc. Now look at the Kyrie. That's Greek. Some people don't know that, but that's Greek. Yeah. Yeah. So all of this is going to be in Sacrosanctum Concilium. That's why you need to study it. So um, those are some special issues that I think are important, and I hope we really get to them, because if you're out in parishes, I, I think it's so important for you to really understand how we should be putting this into practice. And now, one example is, I have a book that I wrote on First Communion liturgies. Um, it's not very popular. People don't like it. They don't like what I have to say. Because I'm telling them that First Communion is not entertainment or recreating the liturgy. It's, it's the mass at which children are receiving their first, first.
Some people love it, but I'm telling you, some people hate it. Because I'm telling truth. truth. <laughs> so that's just an example. And I, I accept it, but I stand by every word. Good. Every word in it. Good? Any questions? You're with me, everybody? Uh, you're so great. Thanks for the thumbs up. So, as moving along, again, looking very broadly, I just want to talk a little bit about this introduction to liturgical studies, which, again, I hold near and dear to my heart. I love the liturgy. I have always loved studying the liturgy. Um, I can't say any more. Uh, in fact, that picture there of the books, that's one, one of my five bookcases in my home office. But every single one of those is a book on the liturgy. <laughs> All right? That I've been uh, from about 1987 when I started studying liturgy. Um, I want you all to build a library like that. <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, it's great. But anyway. Liturgical studies, or it's often referred to, we don't hear it too often, but in the scholarly world, uh, liturgics, all right, is a word, and again, we don't hear it a lot, but you might see it in print, all right, is a theological discipline that focuses on the history and the theology of liturgy. Now, again, I, I want to reiterate regarding the historical development, this is relatively new. This wasn't something prior to the Second Vatican Council that people studied. So this is relatively new. When I was studying liturgy in the 80s, it was very new, very new. And people were very excited. Um, prior to that, my husband is quite a few years older than me, and he studied at the Pius X School of Liturgical Music, and he studied liturgy. But basically what he was studying was rubrics in the extraordinary form, understanding you know, what's going on. This is very different. This is looking at the theology of the liturgy, which is really important because good theology leads to good practice, right? Some of you have heard me say that before. And our practices, our liturgical practice, should reflect good theology, OK? That's why we need to be here with this uh, systematic study of the liturgy. Um, because it, it influences, understanding the theology of the liturgy influences how we prepare the liturgy. Notice, we don't plan the liturgy. It's already planned. This is what, with all due respect, people who um, or dealing with uh, sacramental, like First Communion, for example. They're planning it, but it's already planned and it's the Mass, right? But we prepare it, and we'll prepare it well if we understand what's in Sacrosanto Concilium, what's in the general instruction, what's in the commentaries. Make sense? We need to understand that, okay? So good theology of the liturgy is going to influence how we prepare and how we celebrate as well, okay? Liturgical studies explore the elements and expression of liturgy. And as I said before, uh, talking about the language of the liturgy, all right? Um, this is 
getting at what I meant when I said that. For example, we're going to look at sacred scripture and its role in the liturgy. It has a very important role in the liturgy, where, again, prior to, you know, uh, remembering before the Second Vatican Council, we had no idea of any role of, of the of liturgy of the word at all. Okay, so that's, it has an important role to play in the liturgy. And I, I won't say any more about it now, but we will expand on that, because that's important. Because you'll notice, when we, even when we look at sacraments, every sacrament includes the word, whether it's marriage, reconciliation. I'm hard-pressed to find, when you go into a private confession, technically, according to the right, the priest is supposed to read from Scripture. I've never experienced it, unless I've had like a penance service. But technically, it's in the right. Uh, so my point is, is that liturgy of scripture has a role in uh, every liturgy, which includes the seven sacraments. Okay? Uh, prayer. Liturgy is prayer. It's the prayer of the church. And we need to look at that. All right? The language of worship. Um, the language of worship could be described as poetic. You know how when you read a poem, if you read a poem, you can go deeper and deeper and get a lot of meaning from it? It's the same thing with the language of the liturgy. So that's in my research and writing, I describe it that way, that it's poetic. Um, the liturgy speaks to our heart. The language of the liturgy speaks to our heart, not just to our mind, all right? It speaks to our heart, or it should, okay? I'm going to talk the ideal here. Music, as I mentioned before, has a very important role in um, the liturgy, the role of sacred music, as we have a musician in our midst, and I'm being married to one, I understand that. And I did, actually, I have to uh, disclose that uh, in college, uh, I was in music ministry, I was a cantor, and that's how I first started into ministry. But then I, I loved teaching so much more, but I have that background and appreciation. But sacred ministry, uh, sacred music rather, is um, a, a degree on its own. My husband has a degree in sacred music, you know. Uh, we have a program in sacred music here, which Alvamar is a part of our St. Cecilia Academy through the Archdiocese. But sacred music is a field unto itself, all right? So that just shows you it plays an extremely important part. Uh, I know that, you know, my husband's full-time job has always been director of music and liturgy. And sometimes um, people will ask him, well, what do you do for a job? Like, what do you do during the week? And he's like, you know, this is my job. <laughs> this is what I do every seven days a week. This is what I do. You know, so for some people that doesn't make sense. But anyway, hymns, hymnody. Uh, it's important to understand hymnody, uh, the theology of hymns. Some hymns are good, some hymns are not so good. All right? Uh, we go through, and that's where Sing to the Lord comes in, you know. And again, we have one musician in our midst, but for everybody, just to be have an awareness, you know, that it's not about, for let's say confirmation, that it's not about, you know, my favorite songs have to be played. 
you know. Um, you know, my husband has a constant, I always bring in stories. You have to, they're real stories. But my husband has a, ha, used to have a constant argument with the director of religious education about the hymn, Here I Am, Lord. Because she used to say, I hate it. But it's so appropriate to, you know, for confirmation, for example. And, you know, it was actually written for an ordination, I believe. But anyway. It's not about one of my favorite songs. It's about what are the songs, what are the hymns, excuse me, that are best <coughs> work in this parish, you know? Um, I know I'm doing some workshops for the Archdiocese on music and sacraments. And in a nutshell, my message is, when you choose music for First Communion, you choose music that the parish sings. You don't go outside of the box and picking out songs for children or whatever. No, teach the children the song, the hymns that we sing in the parish. That's my message in a sentence. Uh, there's more to it, but I believe firmly on that. When I prepared sacraments in parish life, I would say to the music director, you, you tell me what to put in the program. You know what we sing in this parish. And that's the hymns we're going to sing at First Communion. The hymns that the children and their families are singing every Sunday during the Easter season, let's say, whatever. That's, a, that's an important thing. Anyway, so we're, we're going to uh, look at um, liturgical studies looks at all of this, OK? Signs and symbols, that's going to be a big thing to understand. You know, some people um, very often hear the word symbol, you know, and don't understand what it means, signs, symbols. The best example I could give is the wedding ring. This is a symbol that has multiple meaning of what it means to live out the sacrament of matrimony. See? So we're going to talk about that. That's a real important thing. And then liturgical environment, you know, as well. We're good? Good. Thumbs up to all of you there? Okay, so what is liturgy? All right, With, again, this is very introductory, very broad. It's the movie that maybe you're saying, what is this about? <laughs> All right, uh, first and foremost, know that the word liturgy, which by the way, we didn't use prior to the Second Vatican Council in the West, we did not use the word liturgy. That was like a new word for us, okay? But it's from the Greek word, liturgia, meaning public work. Um, it was originally a secular word that the church borrowed, all right? So public work or work of the people, literally. Okay, hear that, work of the people, all right? I'm gonna expand a little bit about on that in a moment. That's what it literally means work of the people. But hear what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says about liturgy. The word liturgy originally meant public work or a service in the name of, on behalf of the people. In Christian tradition, it means the participation of the people of God in the work of God. 
I'm going to go back to that sentence in a minute. Through the liturgy, Christ, our Redeemer and High Priest, continues the work of redemption in, with, and through his church. Now, I just want to go back. That's a mouthful. It's right out of the catechism. And there's that great section, I have it on your bibliography, in the catechism on the prayer of the church. Literally, it means the work of the people. From the Second Vatican Council up till not too long ago, we stressed that too much. And recent scholarship, and I have to admit that I picked this up when I was writing my dissertation on the Paschal Triduum, because I have a whole chapter on theology and liturgy, and I picked it up. Scholarly research tries to emphasize that liturgy is the work of God. That's important. It's the work of God in which the people of God are participating in. And that's where you get that work of the people. But we are participating, the people of God are participating in the work of God. Because think about it, I had mentioned before that liturgy is prayer. And we'll expand upon this later on, but it's public prayer, right? Okay? But all prayer is the work of God. Prayer, our private prayer, is always God's initiative, God calling up. So if liturgy is prayer, the same thing holds true. And we don't want to forget that. That liturgy is God's work, and we participate in it. And that's an amazing thing. So here, um, so you have a, this is just pulled from the catechism. Speaking broadly, again, don't forget. Here's um, from uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. And this is paragraph 10, very famous, but I'm not sure we've really absorbed it, what it means. It says, the liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed. At the same time, it's the foundation from which all the church's power flows. For the aim and object of apostolic works is that all who are made children of God by faith and baptism should come together to praise God in the midst of the church to take part in the sacrifice. To take part in the sacrifice. And to eat the Lord's Supper. This is basically telling us that the liturgy is the most important thing we do in the parish. I remember saying that at a parent meeting once, years ago, and somebody raised their hand and said, I think it's more important to help the poor. Of course it's important to help the poor, but where does helping the poor come from? The mission that we are sent on from the liturgy. That's what this means. Yes. So everything moves toward the liturgy and from the liturgy. But it is the most important thing that we do in a parish. The most important thing. That's what this is saying. The summit and this, this translation says the summit and font. Others say the summit and source. I'm not sure which one on the, that link that I gave you. I have a feeling it'll say source. But it means the same thing. Right? And we, we always have to remember that. And if you look catechetically, at the 2000
2005 catechetical directory, we have a new directory that I haven't studied yet, going back 2005. The chapter on catechesis in a worshiping community is the center chapter, chapter five. And the bishops intended it to show that this is the center of all catechesis, for example. But it's the center of everything we do, no matter what it is, social ministry, uh, catechetical ministry, youth ministry, you name it. Liturgy has to be center. Okay, make sense? So that, I'm going to give you a few quotes to kind of chew on for the week here. Uh, so now we're going to go to Monsignor Irwin and his heavy, heavy theological discourse <laughs> in context and text. He basically says, and I like it, what he says. He says, liturgy is the privileged act through which the Christian people are continually immersed into and participate in the reality of the living God through Christ's paschal mystery. That's an important sentence. And Sacrosanctum Concilium kind of elaborates on that. And when we talk about that, we'll talk about what active participation in the liturgy, because that's a famous, I think it's paragraph 14, it's like one of the most famous that will call to active participation. But was, what he's getting at here is what does it really mean? We're participating in what? What do you get from this? What are we participating in? The songs? The prayer? Paschal mystery. Paschal mystery. The dying and rising of Christ is what we're called to participate in. Okay. By means of the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the engaged communion of the gathered assembly. You'll hear people, I've heard people in my own family say, well, I can pray just as good at home. I'm not saying we can't pray. Prayer is extremely important. But the gathered assembly, there's a reason for that. And it's very biblical. Jesus gathered people. He gathered people. So we'll talk about that, the importance of the assembly. And assembly is a word we didn't use prior to Vatican II either. But it's very important, and we'll, we will look at that. So I like uh, Kevin Irwin, Monsignor Kevin Irwin, uh, his, his description in the very introductory pages of the book. The privileged act, all right? So we're going to look at on your next slide. And this, again, is uh, from his book. But liturgy is always an action, an event, in which people's participation is of the highest value. I just wanted to make a quick comment about Erwin. He, he, in his preface, he talks a lot about the extraordinary and the ordinary rites of the Mass. And it's just, it's, uh, I just, I like this passage where he says, midst of the engaged communion, because he talks about not being engaged in, and those of us who've been in extraordinary right masses when we were kids, mm -hmm. knew like in my parish, or you know, a lot of little old Italian ladies doing the rosary while the mass was going on, and people not paying attention, and you know, just doing their own thing. So he makes a, he makes a big deal about that. That's why the term engaged is... It's very important, and thank you, Anthony. What Anthony just said, remember before I lost my train of thought? Oh. You got, I got it oh. back because of what you said. Mm -hmm. At least I think I got it back, but I want to 
um, about that. Um, I can't believe I lost it again. <laughs> the Italian lady said, being I can engaged. say that because I'm Italian, but being engaged, you know, uh, I got it. Forgive me, it's been a long day. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize it. The way the extraordinary form, and again, this is an observation, it's fact, it's not a judgment, but the way it's celebrated today is not what we experienced before. Because when I did my research on the history of the liturgy, it was a hodgepodge of things going on. One example that comes to mind is, you know how we have a communion rite and everybody comes to communion at the same time? Prior to the reform, communion was being described distributed at various times during the Mass, just kind of randomly. So the point I'm making here, which you sparked, is we needed a reform. So what people are experiencing now with the extraordinary form is not necessarily the way it was, or else we wouldn't have needed a reform. We needed a reform. And the reform is based on tradition, no matter what anybody Thinks. And I think Pope Francis in his new document kind of alludes to some of that. But we'll, we'll have time to talk about it. But thank you for that. But the important thing here is bring up it's an action, it's something we do. Sacra sacraments, liturgy, and sacraments are things we do, not things we get. You see language, how important it is? Professor, I want to ask you a quick question. Yes, please. Is that Carlos? Yes, um, I just wanted to ask you, because um, 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 right now we're talking about the Mass only, right? Um, I'm talking about liturgy in general, but I'm using some examples that relate to the, the liturgy of the, of the, the Eucharist. But yeah, the principles yeah, would pertain to the sacraments as well. Yeah, because the word liturgy, I don't know if I don't know if I've read something wrong before, but before the class I was looking up the word liturgy. And I don't know, does it also, like, could the word liturgy also be referred to, like, another sacrament? I would say, is a baptismal rite? Yes. Rite? Oh, absolutely, Carlos. Yes, I thought, I tried to make it clear, but again, this is very broad. Liturgy includes all the sacraments. All the sacraments, baptism, confirmation, ma uh, matrimony, holy, holy orders. They're liturgies. We use the word rite. And now with the revisions, we're using order. But that means they're ritual. Liturgy is ritual prayer. And these are the rituals of the church. So all of the seven sacraments are liturgy. Does that help you? Sacred mysteries. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. It's very, that's, that's very good, that clarification. So when we're talking about liturgy, I'm talking about a baptismal liturgy, confirmation liturgy. Uh, holy orders, matrimony, anointing of the sick. Did I leave one out? Reconciliation. Is the divine office considered part of the liturgy? Yes, it is. And that's what we're going to talk about. It is. It's liturgy. Even though we might uh, pray it by ourselves, and I pray it morning and night, <coughs> I love it, it is still considered the prayer of the church. Because if you're at your house, wherever you live, praying it, and I'm in my house, we're all praying it together. Yeah. So it's not private prayer. 
that we are praying for the church when we pray the hours. And we will have a session on that as well. We'll focus on and we'll talk about that because that's very important. And we have to teach more people in our pews to pray the Liturgy of the Hours. And there's, you know, I mean, I have Book of Christian Prayer. I have it on my phone, which is very handy. I always have it. But they made things like Magnificat, uh, Give Us This Day, that have shortened versions for people that don't have time, that are still getting a sense of praying the prayer of the day, morning and evening, if not, you know, all the hours. I particularly love night prayer. I just think it's so wonderful. That's my favorite. Um, but yes, so that's absolutely good. Excellent. Thank you for saying that. All right, so uh, Carlos, that was a great uh, question to clarify. When we talk about liturgy, it's not just Mass, the Eucharist. All right? And when I say Eucharist, I'm talking about the celebration of the Mass. All right? We do have the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist, and we often and appropriately uh, talk about Holy Communion as the Eucharist. But, and in my book on First Communion Liturgies, I said it straight. When I say Eucharist, I'm talking about the whole thing. The celebration of the Eucharist, which is the Mass. Okay, but it's not inappropriate to talk about Holy Communion as Eucharist, because it is. But, you know, again, you have the context. All right? So that, that was great. Now, the next slide, and I love this, Gilbert Osteich, in this book, Catechesis for Liturgy. I had forgotten about it, so it's probably not on the bibliography. But when I was preparing this a few weeks ago, it came back to me because I used it in my dissertation and I loved it. But he says, liturgy is not a thing. It's the act of a people who gather with the risen Lord to keep covenant with God, to hear God's word, to pray, to offer thanks and praise for the marvelous thing God has done for us in Jesus, and to leave with a mission. People forget that. We need to help people notice. It is a moment in which we lift up the movements of our daily lives to allow them to be enlightened with the gospel word and to be signed with a gesture of dying and rising. There it is, Paschal Mystery. Liturgy is a verb. Don't ever forget that. <laughs> Filled with people celebrating and living. That is packed. And it's, it's very good. Now, I couldn't resist, but this is me speaking. All right, this is my book on uh, the Paschal Triduum, which was adapted from my dissertation. But I say that liturgy, let me read it from here, it's easier. I say that liturgy, the ritual prayer of the community. So I want to make clear that people know, the reader knows it's prayer, but it's ritual prayer, and it's prayer of the community. In other words, not private, right? Liturgy, the ritual prayer in community, is the heart of the Roman Catholic Church's tradition. I said that before. It's the most important thing we do. From generation to generation, the memory of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ compelled enthusiastic gathering, prayer, table companionship, care, 
and mission. It is the unifying ritual action of the community of believers to prepare the baptized. with the risen Lord that aids us in remembering who we are. All right? We come to liturgy remembering who we are. It's a lot about identity here, and we don't ever want to forget that. Okay? <coughs> the next one, and this is on your bibliography, the spiritual meaning of the liturgy. Um, Gafredo... Um, he says the future of Christianity in the West depends on the church's capacity to allow its liturgy to become the course of, uh, I think I meant the source. Some of you have had me before know that I have typos on my PowerPoints, I apologize. But it's the source of spiritual life. This is an important thing, and this is something that I grew into in the early days of working in ministry and loving liturgy, that... If I had to describe my own spirituality, I would say it's a liturgical spirituality. It's based on the hours. It's based on the feasts and seasons, the prayers of the Mass. But that's what he's saying, that it is a tremendous source of spiritual life. It nourishes. And I am a prayer of the rosary and novenas and devotions. I love all that. But the liturgy, is, again, it's... My private prayer moves me toward the liturgy, and liturgy moves me back to saying, I need to pray the rosary. You see? So it works together. So a lot of people uh, at the time of the Second Vatican Council thought we threw away devotion. And, and they became unpopular. And there's a document about devotions, because we needed to help people to understand that, no, devotions are alive and well and living. And they're not to be said, like in the old days, people were saying their devotions during Mass because they didn't understand what was going on. They're, they're meant to nourish us that we bring, you know, uh, our, a deeper spirituality to the Mass. See what I'm saying? So prayers, private prayer and devotion is extremely important. But when we come to Mass, we're meant to pray the prayers of the Mass, not the Rosary. An observation, not a judgment. That's important. Right, Lucas? Absolutely. Because I have a lot of stories, and I don't like people to think I'm criticizing. I'm just trying to use it as an example. All right, now here, here we go back to Erwin. Um, Liturgy is essentially integrated in the sense that it shapes how we look at all of life as this graced world. That is powerful. The whole thesis of my dissertation on the Paschal Triduum is that it teaches us something. We call that liturgical catechesis. But the point is, and he says it here, that liturgy shapes us. And it gives us a different world view. All right? We look at everything differently if we really engage ourselves in this prayer of the church. How can we not? We hear the living word of God. We experience the real presence of our Lord in Holy Communion. How can that not shape us? All right? 
and how liturgy is the essential means for disclosing what life is and means to the Christian. That's what I mean when I keep saying this is about identity and who we are. So in other words, liturgy is formative. It shapes our identity, and every time we participate in the celebration of the liturgy, and Carlos, this is for, in response to that great question, whether it's a baptismal liturgy, uh, the sacrament of reconciliation, matrimony, holy orders, anointing of the sick. Every time, uh, the Eucharist certainly, but every time we participate, our Christian identity is deepened. That's the goal here. And every celebration of the liturgy, no matter what it is, is meant for us to go deeper, 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 okay? So it shapes us and it forms us. Dean? Yes? Would that include a funeral, a mass or Christian burial funeral? Well, that's the celebration of the Eucharist. A, a, a funeral is mass, so it's a celebration of the Eucharist for a particular but yes, every Eucharist should form and shape us. But I didn't want to negate saying a baptismal liturgy, you know, or going to confession, certainly. Listen to the prayers pretty soon, holy orders. They form and shape us very beautifully, right? Anointing of the sick, if you've ever experienced that. And here he is, my dear, dear, heroic friend from 1888 to 1938, Virgil Michael, Benedictine monk. All right, I have to introduce you to him now, tonight, um, because he has something to say about liturgy. And I relate to him so well. I visited where he lived in Collegeville, Minnesota, St. John's Abbey. And I'll never forget uh, being there, that I felt like I'm breathing the air he breathed. But he, I'm introducing you to him, we'll talk more about him and others when we talk about the liturgical movement, but he's considered the father of the liturgical movement in the United States, all right? And he has a very interesting um, uh, background. Uh, in short, he was sent to Belgium from Minnesota to study philosophy, because he was teaching philosophy. And he read a book on liturgy. He stayed up all night reading a book on liturgy and changed the whole course of his life. And he became the father of the liturgical movement in the United States because he brought it all back here in the early part of the uh, 1900s. So Virgil Michael suggested that the liturgy is the awareness of one's baptism and it's ongoing renewal. And I, I, to digress from this, I have a line in my First Communion uh, book saying, we come to the celebration of the Eucharist remembering what happened at the font. That's why there's holy water fonts when we enter churches and we bless ourselves to remind us of our baptism. We need to teach people that because they don't know it, right? And I don't know with the pandemic there hasn't been any water, but still, the whole idea. And it's ongoing renewal. So that, that he, what he's saying here is we're living out our baptism every day. And liturgy reminds us of that. Which offered the foundation, and I think it's supposed to be rationale for all. 
Christian, for all Christian participation, liturgical, and otherwise. And um, when you turn the page, I have, or you look at, we'll look at the next slide, in the words of Virgil Michael himself. He says, through the liturgy, rightly understood and lived, all our life is centered in Christ, and the Christ life radiates out into every action of the day. That's taken from a book by Kathleen Hughes, uh, How Firm a Foundation, Voices of the Early Liturgical Movement. But Virgil, Virgil Michael worked tirelessly to help people. He founded, you see some of the books, like the Metzger book, Liturgical Press in Collegeville. He was the founder of Liturgical Press, and it's still going strong. You might see in the library, Worship Magazine, he was the founder. It had a Latin name to begin with, but he founded it and it's still going strong. He did this. And his purpose was to teach people what liturgy is, and the beauty of it is he connected it with catechesis and social justice. But we lost those connections along the way. He worked tirelessly. He had a nervous breakdown in his 30s, and I can relate to that because sometimes I feel like I'm gonna have a breakdown if people don't <laughs> understand this stuff. <laughs> I said that to one of your uh, classmates uh, just yesterday, but it's true. Uh, so I get it. It's like, Virgil Michael, please help me here. I'm trying to give your message. But, and then just as a final little uh, point of trivia about Virgil Michael, he was a good friend of Dorothy Day. Okay. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. So he was trying to connect. Liturgy is about life and how we live as the baptized. So connecting it with catechesis, liturgical catechesis. We need to learn about liturgy, toward the liturgy, and from the liturgy. Remember, liturgy in itself is formative, right? That's what he was getting at. And then the mission is social justice. Beautiful thing. We're still working on this. Pray to Virgil Michael for help here, right? But I, I just wanted to introduce you to him. We'll talk more about him when we look at the liturgical movement and all what that meant. And then there are certainly other great figures of the liturgical movement. You know, uh, in, the, in a book about Virgil, in, at Manhattanville College, you all know where that is. In, purchase, I guess. There used to be uh, the Pius Tenth School of Liturgical Music used to be at that campus. My husband got his bachelor's degree there, but it's no longer. But Virgil Michael visited there way before in the history of that school. He went there and he talked to the students. Can you imagine? That's a great thing. That's great. So to wrap it all up and then I'll just open up for questions, I just want to say next we're going to start to look at some historical development. Questions, concerns, confusion, clarification. You're good? Remember, it's the broad picture. We're setting the stage of where we're going to go. Narrow, narrow, narrow. You good? So if you want to start reading the Metzger book, I know some of you read the whole thing. And it's OK. But that will be really good background for you when we uh, take uh, what I'm calling, I put it in two parts, 
because I want you to have that foundation of history, but it's going to be, you know, like an overview. I want to point out specifically to try to understand how we got to where we are today. That's the point. Because some, again, yes, Carlos? Yeah, I have a, topic, a question about uh, reading. So, like, um, you said that for the first two weeks we're going to be reading about um, Metzer, the Metzer yeah. book? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then, yeah. and then after that, book, which book? Or which well, time? I don't know. We'll see. We're going to be flexible here. Don't worry about that. Let's think of it one step at a time. Okay. All right? Don't worry. All right. All right, we're good. Um, my friends, uh, I just want to say something. I think other than Miguel and let some of you know, and uh, Anne-Marie is from New Jersey, right? Some of you are from Huntington, right? I just want to put this out here. I don't need an answer. I was talking to Dean Hamill Cregan. If there is a time and we would all have to agree on a mutual night. This isn't a requirement. This is for you. If you wanted me to teach one class every now and then from Huntington, but y'all who live on Long Island would have to agree to come, it's, it's uh, under discussion. I just want to throw it out there. Not a requirement at all. Uh, but I live kind of in between here and Huntington, so I can do it. Um, so just keep it in the back of your minds, and it's a thought. Uh, I just told Dean Hamill Cregan that I'm open to it. Okay? But it's not a requirement, because some of you may not want to drive to the seminary in Huntington. So, okay? Think about it. Okay? Any quest other questions from the screen? You're all good? Will you be signing autographs in Huntington? Autographs? Phenomenal <laughs> feet. <laughs> you know, I just want you to know, sometimes I mention, uh, I'm not, uh, believe me, I, I've never been about selling books. I write books to teach on a broader stage, but I often, I want my students to know that I've done the research. That's why I mention them. It has nothing to do with whether you want them or not. I know somebody on the screen has bought every one of them, but that's okay. Thank you. And all my proceeds uh, are donated. I keep nothing from my royalties. I keep nothing. They're all donated to a very uh, worthy, worthy community of priests. So, but I mention them to let you know I've done the research and I've also lived out the practice. So that's why I just mentioned why I do it. Okay. All right, so I uh, will see you next week, same time, same station. All good? You happy? Happy students? Get energized. I didn't think we'd go this way. Sorry.